Blog Talk Radio. Aloha and welcome to Talking Pictures. I'm your host, Paul Booth. Today is going to be a fun day. Well, every day is a fun day. Yesterday, we want to thank Lily Rodriguez for coming out, uh, well, not coming out, for calling in on opening day of the Palm Springs International Shorts Fest. That was very, very cool of her. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, After you listen to this episode, take a step back uh, into the archives. Also, recent episodes include the wedding invitation review, director interview with Rainey Kerwin, who made the the wedding invitation. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about the Cannes, Con, Everybody Calls It Something Different Film Festival. Um, if it's obviously the granddaddy, grand poobah, whatever you want to call it, of film festivals. And it's interesting because this year I, through Facebook, realized that I knew about eight or ten people that went. And that was kind of interesting because one of the reasons why I've never had an interest in going is because I thought, what's the point of going to a film festival where you know don't know anyone and you also don't speak the language? And there's that myth that people in France don't really like Americans. And so, yeah, with that, I'm not, and that's true. And so with that, it was, there was not much allure to me. Um, it's now I'm not knocking the festival. I'm just saying what I've heard. So I'm excited that we're going to have someone telling us what it's really like there. I've heard that there's like six or seven levels of badges and there's like the, I guess the schmo badge, and then there's like the industry badge, and there's like the studio badge, and there's like the, if you're George Clooney badge, and uh, a number of people I spoke to said that you just kind of experience the circus of it, but you don't have opportunities to network unless you're already at a point where you don't need to network. So I'm not, I'm just saying this was the myth. So because that was put in my brain, I thought, why shell out $1,500 to fly to France? I could do that at any other time. And we'll bring in our guest in a moment. And I thought, so what would that really serve uh, any of the purposes I had? So once this year came around and I noticed that a bunch of people I knew were there, I thought I got to find a way to talk to one of these associates so they can kind of hopefully break some of the myths and then also just tell us about their experience. So uh, welcome, Madison. Are you with us? Yes, I am. Hi. (laughs) Thank you for calling in. We appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to be on air. (laughs) Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. I I had just mentioned a few things that I was that I'm going to be asking you about uh, mm-hmm. the first one, the first one is, uh, there's this great myth that, sur- and I know you were there doing some personal business, so it was kind of, it was a little bit different for you, but, um, there's this great myth around the can con film festival that, uh, there's all these different levels of badges and you kind of don't go there unless you have business or are doing something and, and so mm-hmm. kind of, do you have a, can you kind of give some insight to that myth? I mean, was there this kind of like, 
you know, you can go here, but you can't go here. And I mean, how, 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 what, what, what is the reality of it once you're there and you're, you're doing business with a company? How, how does that work? So there are different levels of badges. I think there's a normal festival badge and then there's a marquee to film festival badge. And maybe there's some more VIP badges, but I had the marquee to film one and that got me into uh, market screenings, so I could see basically any market screening, and then I could see re-screenings of the um, in-competition and out-of-competition films that had already premiered at Cannes, so that um, gave me access to those screenings. I think a regular festival badge is a little bit harder to get into those re-screenings because I was in line, I think it was for the killing of a sacred deer, and it was for marquee badges only, so there are... Um, it is very restrictive. Like you have to have a certain badge in order to go to a, um, a certain type of screening. Um, I think for the premieres, you might be able to get in with a festival badge, but it's invite only. So you have to submit um, a couple days ahead of time kind of a request on their online system, and then they notify you the day of. So I got an email. I saw the premiere of uh, Blade of the Immortal, and so I got an email that saying that I got an invitation um, the day of, and then I had to pick it up by like noon that day. Um, so it's like a whole process that if you don't pick up um, your ticket, you get put on this list basically that you can't get invited to anything else. Like, so basically the way they have it is you go into the palais and you have to get a ticket, um, the ticket that you were invited for. But a lot of people, they got invited to it, but they can't attend it. So the, there's a ton of people that crowd out crowd up outside of the palais and they just wait for people to leave because there's so many people that have tickets that they couldn't just not pick up because they would get put on the do not invite list basically. Um, so they would just give away the tickets to those people. And um, yeah, so it is a whole, whole process in order to really get into any screening. And I had to wait for like an hour, an hour and a half, even with my marquee badge to go into the in competition or out of competition rescreenings, so it is it is a big process, and different badges get you into different aspects of the festival. Okay, yeah, because I was mentioning before you came on air that I had always heard these, uh, and from people who had went there, these myths about different levels of badges and how kind of uh, unlike many festivals where you're just press or filmmaker or VIP sponsor, which of course the VIP sponsor can like being Mick Jagger at a Rolling Stones concert. Um, <laughs> there's, mm -hmm. And it's only in the last few years has it gotten really, uh, the show's been doing, well, I've been doing this for seven years. The show's been doing it for three. Uh, only in the last couple of years, or I would even say last couple of festivals, has it been really, really strict and Mm -hmm. which we both know always means someone messed it up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. press, press has had a harder time getting into parties, which has been this kind of funny duality because the festival doesn't want press in there being stupid and bugging filmmakers. But then filmmakers I talk to are like, what do you mean? We want press. So it's mm -hmm. been a real, uh, you know, like CineQuest was like that too. Like I couldn't go to any of those. Uh, VIP soirees or 
mm-hmm. any of the filmmaker parties, and I'd get I, I'd get five or six filmmakers that would be like, "What are you there? Why weren't you there?" And it, it, it it's kind of a weird dichotomy, uh, Madison, because it actually makes some people look like flakes. You know, it's like I wanted mm-hmm. you to come talk to me, and you didn't show up. So I really wanted to kind of break that myth down because that was one of the reasons why. I didn't have an interest in going there until I had real serious business because I thought mm-hmm. I can go to France anytime. I can go there and get turned down for stuff anytime. So thank you for yeah. telling us, you know, telling us about that. Now, whatever details you have to keep private, we're cool with and we're, you know, that I know that side of the business. Uh, but mm-hmm. what can you tell us? about the red carpet premiere of Blade of the Immortal, the actual experience of standing on that red carpet that's in so many photos and. <laughs> um, it was pretty, pretty surreal. I, it's a huge carpet. I mean, you've seen pictures, so it's like basically a ballroom sized red carpet. And um, it was, I lucked out and somehow I got orchestra seats for that premiere. And so they, they divide you into two different groups depending on um, what type of ticket you have. So for me, somehow, by some miracle, I ended up with orchestra. So I got put in the line that gets to actually walk down the red carpet because they do funnel out. Like if you're sitting in the balcony, they only give you like a couple seconds to take a picture and then they rush you up the stairs. That's what a lot of my friends told me. But for me, I didn't know. But apparently, because I had an orchestra seat, I was able to walk down the whole thing and kind of take my time and get pictures taken and everything. So there are two different lines, and um, somehow I ended up in the in the nice line that I could actually experience the carpet, which was amazing. Um, there's, you know, photographers lined up on either side of it, and they're all snapping pictures. And sometimes they'll make you pose, even though they don't really know who you are. They just kind of want to have those pictures. And... Um, there was a funny instance where there was this man that was in line with me and um, he was helping me take pictures with my phone because I was like, okay, I just need a couple, you know, pictures for, for myself. And one of the photographers like thought we were together. So he, you know, made us pose. So somewhere on the internet, there's a picture of me standing next to some random guy I met in line. So it's interesting <laughs> the way that they, the way that they, you know, assume things they are like, Oh yeah, well they're obviously, you know, walking together so they know each other. But in reality, I did not know him at all. So just, um, it was wild. Like, they would be like, oh, okay, we want your picture. And they, they don't know who you are, but they want it anyway, just in case it turns out that you had some sort of celebrity connection. So um, we kind of passed by there and, like, passed by all the photographers. And then when you get to the stairs, you have a bit more time to take photos if you want to, like selfies or whichever. And... I think I had about like five or six minutes on the carpet, but it felt like forever because it was just so surreal and everything was so bright and the lights were intense and there was photographers and everyone was in pretty gowns and tuxedos. And cause there is a very strict dress code to go on the red carpet. So everyone's dressed to like the tea, which was amazing. It's just what you would imagine it to be <laughs> basically. Yeah. It, um, and is there, is there any kind of sense of, not a in in a good way, but is there any kind of a sense of you get to see that other side and you feel like how can I put this? Like I've I've 
I have some celebrity friends and they, they always kind of, they know they have to do it for the movie or the studio, but they always kind of have that little like, what's my picture going to do for your, other than that you sell it, what's my picture going to do like, because they're just so human. So was there ever that kind of like, mm-hmm. oh my God, there's all these cameras and I'm just me. I'm going to go back to my room. I'm going to text my friends. <laughs> I'm going to call my dad. So why does so many people need to be taking my picture? Like, is that a, is that just a really crazy, like out of body experience? I, I mean, in my own head, I'm just like, yeah, it's me. I'm walking in heels and I'm trying not to trip over. And like, I don't want to embarrass myself. (laughs) And I'm with all these fancy people and I'm like, I'm a college student. Like, what am I doing here? Kind of thing. Like, and then the fact that they would be taking my picture, I was like, what? Like, oh, I feel like an imposter or something. <laughs> like, don't, don't take my picture. Like, I don't know. I yeah, mean, part, it is well, very surreal, well, you, like you said. Well, you don't have to uh, get into the specifics of why you were there, but uh, getting to see Blade of the Immortal, and I looked up this director when you had sent me the IMDb page, and I know mm-hmm. every country has a different uh filmmakers you know like of course um I don't want to say this is Japan but okay Japan um I know like Akura Kurosawa could make three or four or five films a year and here in America one of the only directors that can do that is Woody Allen and Mm -hmm. uh, as I looked as I looked at his I mean from 1991 to 2017 to make 102 films that does not apply to American directors. I mean, getting no. one done every two years. So to get four done in a year. Now, let, you know, let's say they might not all be Oscar-nominated films or they might not all be the greatest thing, but still to do 102 films in 25 years, Spielberg doesn't even do that. So mm-hmm. uh, this this film is... Uh, I'll just read a quick synopsis. A highly skilled samurai becomes cursed with immortality after a legendary battle. Haunted by the brutal murder of his sister, Banji knows that only fighting evil will regain his soul. He promises to help a young girl named Rin avenge her parents who were killed by a group of master swordsmen led by ruthless warrior Anatsu. The mission will change Banji in ways he can never imagine out. I I would like to know your review of this because it's it's very very hard with samurai films that the theme is not revenge. It's almost like mm-hmm. a western. There's there's not a whole lot of uh area to go with um or it's it's either self-redemption or it's killing someone or it's so mm-hmm. uh what was it film what was this film like for you uh given your age and that you had mentioned maybe you didn't have many, a bunch of years studying, you know, 50 different samurai films and a hundred different Westerns. Mm-hmm. So tell us what this film yeah, was like I, for you. I had never seen a samurai film before, so it was completely new to me in every way possible. And it was also extremely violent. Um, like, one of those movies where every single scene someone's head gets chopped off or their arm is missing or, you know, it was like constant violence. And for the first, like, you know, 10 minutes, you're just like shocked. Like you're sitting in your seat and you're like, Oh my God, like, like they've exhausted all the options of killing someone. Like they've, 
like literally with with their samurai knives, like everything that I could possibly think could have happened with a samurai knife happened in the first like 10 minutes. So I was just like, because the first scene is like a brutal murder scene, essentially. So I kind of knew what I was getting myself into within those first 10 minutes. And I was like, okay, this isn't really like my, like a slasher film, not really my style, but um, by the end of it, you're super desensitized. Like you're like, oh yeah, he just lost a arm, a head, whatever, because like you've been watching it for two hours. I think it's a two-hour and 20-minute movie or something like that. Yeah. And it's just, like, constant brutality. And uh, I don't think I've ever seen a film that was that graphic and violent. But I think what, like, held me on to it was, like, the acting was very well. They were very great actors. And the relationships between the characters, um, Manji, who is the samurai warrior, and then Rin, who's the little girl he's, like, helping their relationship really drove the story forward. I think it could have been done better. Um, just there are certain dynamics that, like, she she starts off and she wants to be this samurai warrior or she wants to learn. And by the end, she I feel like she didn't develop as much as I wanted her to. Like, I wanted her to come into her own, and that didn't really happen. But I thought that the relationship between um, Manji and her, like it's kind of like a brother-sister relationship and that drove the story. Without that, I don't think it would have held my attention for two hours and 20 minutes because it was just like so much brutality all the time. Um, But I thought it was well done for what it was, like as a samurai film. Like I don't, I couldn't imagine a samurai film being much better than that like with the story development and the character development and I don't want to give away too much in case it like comes out and people want to see it but um I would say I wouldn't say it was like one of the best films I've ever seen but I think it was for its genre and for I mean you you got to know what you're getting yourself into when you you know sign up to see this movie it's it's just going to be violence the entire time so if you know that going into it then you'll enjoy it for me I didn't know anything I didn't know what I was getting myself into so those first 10 minutes watching it I was just like what did I just get like what am I doing here like this is terrifying but like if you know that and then you can look for the heart in it there is there's a lot of heart in the story that is kind of more under the surface that like drives it forward well it sounds like you went to a really cool concert with orchestra seats and then just had no clue who the band was um, oh, exactly. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. Because I had found out that I got the ticket that day, and I, it was this Japanese, um, the name of it was Mugen no Junin or something like that. So on the ticket, it just said the Japanese name of the film. And, like, I, oh. I didn't even know it was a samurai film <laughs> going into yeah, that. Oh, well, I mean, um, there, I was just know, like, there's, there's a whole list with uh, of films from the 50s and 60s of uh, the great Akira Kurosawa, which, as you know, is, of course, are like, it's like the Japanese Spielberg. And, well, of course, Spielberg takes from him. So I should say Spielberg is the American Kurosawa. But um, mm-hmm. there's, there's some samurai films where they're, you know, they're not bloody and they're not heads flying and they're they're very deep stories about honor and friendship and and mm-hmm. points of view, and um, so that's why I'm always interested in. Uh, my first feature was a samurai film. It played festivals all over the world, but I remember when the director had me do research, I felt the same as you. I was like, "Okay, how many heads are going to fly? 
How many are like <laughs> what like what are like other than I want to make my first feature, like what is really the point of this other than to gain experience and it was just a bunch of good people to work with. But after so mm-hmm. many uh splatter effects, it was just like, okay. So uh with that we'll move into Wonderstruck, which Todd Haynes is very has an incredible following uh, one of his his uh, Carol was nominated for a number of Oscars. I believe it was up for Best Picture. I know it was up for Best Cinematography, uh, Velvet mm-hmm. Goldmine. Um, he's got quite a some call it a cult following, but he I call him a filmmaker of uh, it has to be your taste. And so Wonderstruck. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Wonderstruck. Click on this. I clicked on Todd Haynes and then I clicked. Okay. They both had, now here's the thing. They both had, um, uh, 7.8 on the, oh, and also for those of you that like Bob Dylan, Todd Haynes did that Bob Dylan film where like Keith Heath Ledger played Bob Dylan, Kate Blanchett played Bob Dylan. They even had a, like a 10 year old black kid playing Bob Dylan it was a really interesting <laughs> film. It's called I'm Not There. And Kate Blanchett got an Oscar nomination for it. She was really amazing as Bob Dylan. Okay, so Todd Haynes, the story young boy with a tale about a young girl in New York from the 50s as they both seek the same mysterious connection. This sounds exactly like a Todd Haynes film. Um, so Matt, and it's says Hong Kong, which is interesting because he's an American director, but uh, so go ahead, Maddie, fire away. So Wonderstruck, like you said, yeah, it's about this um, young boy who I don't want to like spoil too much, but I feel like it's a really big part of the story. He, um, he gets in an accident essentially and he becomes deaf. So it's a story about him traveling to New York City to try to reconnect with his father he's deaf or recently deaf so he has to deal with the fact that he cannot hear anyone so that was a very interesting part of the story because I I don't think I've seen many films where it's like a young kid and he's lost in New York City and he can't hear anyone can't communicate with anyone and that was really fascinating and then it's also simultaneously telling the story of this young girl um, years prior it must be like the 50s or the 30s like some sometime um, before and she is deaf as well and she travels to New York City to try to reconnect with her mother so it's both stories are told um, interspersed within each other and her story is told in black and white kind of like a silent film like um, everything in her side of the film is silent except um, the music um, like it's basically like a silent film in her world but you're kind of following her story, and then his story is in color. There's, there's sound in it. Um, but they did do some interesting things where they, they took away the sound so that we could hear what he heard, like, in certain moments. And I think you really connect with his character and her character as well, even though they're from completely different time periods. So, um, I mean, I wouldn't say it was, like, my type of um, – film exactly like it was it was definitely a drama and it had some cute moments and it was all about like connection and family connection and um just kind of finding yourself in New York City and finding out where you belong so 
it was, I thought it was very, it was well done. I think it was extremely stylized. Um, I don't know. I haven't seen Carol, but I don't know if it's extremely stylized, but um, he, he definitely tried to do anything he could to make it stand out, make his film stand out. Because I mean, I think there's been a lot of films with a similar storyline. So he did it stylistically in a way to like try to make it um, hold its own, I think. And the acting was very, very good. So I thought that that was what held it together. Um, but the story itself, I, I feel like it was kind of like been there, done that, <laughs> basically. Um, but well, it I mean, has such, such a great element. Such a great cast, just looking on Internet Movie Database. I mean, Julianne Moore, oh, Michelle yeah. Williams. Um, of mm-hmm. course, Julianne Moore uh, has been on the scene. I can't believe Boogie Nights is 20 years ago. Um, I'm not going to talk about that film because I know your dad. Um, and uh, <laughs> The Hours and uh, Far From Heaven, Julianne Moore nominated for supporting role and leading role. And then, of course, she won for Still Alice which was that haunting, unbelievably on-par uh, performance of her playing somebody with uh, dementia. It was actually really freaky. I've had a couple of aunts pass from dementia, and that film was a real uh, um, eye-opener. So Wonderstruck, again, Todd Haynes. Mm-hmm. Um, many of you guys, are, many of you indie filmmakers are Todd Haynes fans, so um, check that out. And then the last one was the Killing of a Sacred Deer, directed by Yargos Lanthimos. Yeah, that and he was the director of The Lobster as well. Oh, okay. The Lobster, Colin Farrell. That's on Amazon Prime right now if you want to check that out. And uh, The oh. Killing of a Sacred Deer actually starred Colin Farrell as well. Oh, okay, okay, right. Oh, and Nicole Kidman, Alicia Silverstone. Okay, this so this was obviously a little more of a... Well, it says that the director is an American. So so I guess what I'll start with, since this just says, a teenager attempts to bring a brilliant surgeon into his dysfunctional family, and it takes an unexpected turn. But I'll twist the question around a little bit. Uh, obviously, Alicia Silverstone... God, you know what? Actually... I, I won't say your age, but with your age, Alicia Silverstone might even be a little bit uh, the generation before you, which uh, makes me feel like I'm probably as old as your dad. Um, (laughs) And I mean that in a nice way. You know, I love your dad. Uh, But Nicole Kidman, I mean, she turned 50 yesterday. That's so odd. She was in Tom Cruise movies when I was like 10. Um, So Alicia Silverstone, Colin Farrell, uh, what? Uh, first of all, just a brief thing about this film, but then what is it like for you to see these, to experience these actors that are so heavily known in America in a film that uh, basically uh, a foreign director and foreign writers? I think somehow it didn't really phase me, like, I, I wasn't looking at Colin Farrell and being like, oh my gosh, that's Colin Farrell. Like, it was more like he, he was just such a great actor and so were the rest of the cast that it really pulls you in and they become the characters to you. So it wasn't strange to me. I felt like they were, they just were the characters. Um, and I mean, I just think the film was 
it's an extremely disturbing film. So you're you're following these characters, and they're just they're so they're very strange characters, and the whole story is very strange. So um, you're just kind of getting chilled the whole way. And you know, I wasn't really thinking like, oh yeah, Nicole Kidman. It was more like, oh my gosh, she's playing such a weird, strange wife, and I can't believe she did that. And just like it's a it's a very chilling film. Um, it's I wouldn't say it has horror elements, but it's more, I feel like it's more of a drama, like a drama with some horror elements, I think, without like giving away the story. It, it definitely has supernatural elements in it. Yeah. Well, you, you really uh, got lucky or scored with your choices here, because I'm sure you knew it, but I'll mention it, was that Wonderstruck was a Palm d'Or nominee, and Mm-hmm. Killing of a Sacred Deer was a Palme d'Or nominee, and it also won Best Screenplay, tied with Lynn Ramsey for You Were Never Really Here. So it kind of sounds like mm-hmm. if there was some stuff to pick or end up uh, seen, that you mm-hmm. kind of got the pick of the litter in some way. You got a red carpet orchestra, and you got two Palme d'Or nominees. Yeah, I purposely, um, because with my marquee badge, I was able to access the rescreenings of the in-competition films and out-of-competition films, so I was able to look at the schedule and kind of pick and choose what I wanted to go to, and I had heard The Killing of a Sacred Deer was one of those films that you either hate or you love. Like, I talked to some of my friends, and they were like, that was the worst film ever, and other people were like, oh, that was so creepy, but I loved it, so I was kind of intrigued, and I I wanted to see that one. And it definitely lived up to its expectations of creepiness. And it's just, it's a very unsettling, just the way that it, the screenplay, like the way it's written and the way it's filmed and everything is just so like off kilter and all the people in it just have this, it's when you watch it, like it just makes you feel sick to your stomach the entire film, just because everything is so (laughs) off. (laughs) That's a great pull quote, sure Madison. That's, that's, a, that's, a, <laughs> that's a, <laughs> that should be on but the poster. It's, it's obvious. <laughs> but I, I think that's what he was aiming for. He definitely achieved what he was going for because you can tell that he, that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to make you feel incredibly uncomfortable. And just because the story is incredibly uncomfortable and weird. Um, and, it's it's a very slow moving film, so things get drawn out for like I feel like the first hour I was kind of waiting for something to happen. I was like, okay, well like, I get the premise, but like I thought this was a horror film. Like, give me some like I don't know <laughs> something scary. But I feel like it, the scary part of it was that you were waiting and you're like, what is that? What's gonna happen? What's gonna happen? And like it really doesn't hit a climax until the last like 20 minutes of the film. So it is kind of a a slow creeping waiting for something to happen and it's creeping you out. And the music is, I don't know, whoever scored it was like a genius because the music was like piercing and it like, it like cuts through your soul. Like it's just this like piercing all the time. And like, it makes you nervous because nothing's happening, but you're hearing that music and you're like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And you get that for like the first, you know, three fourths of the film. So it's definitely you're waiting most of that film, but it is it does deliver at the end. That's for sure. It gets really disappointing well, at the end. <laughs> that's the best part of some foreign films. I, I 
there's so many that do it. Uh, we were talking the other day about this Woody Allen film where literally the whole entire movie, it's, it's like an hour and 45 minutes. There's so many mm-hmm. times you want to turn it off. There's so many times you're like, <laughs> what is this? And then it gets down to literally the last minute and you're just like, mm-hmm. what a brilliant film. And that I think is probably the hardest thing to do. Um, and it was, it literally was, it was something that made me say, this is one of the most brilliant films I've ever seen. I hated it mm-hmm. the first 95 of a hundred minutes, <laughs> but, w- but what he did at the end was like, I never even thought of that. I never saw that coming. I was never waiting for that. And it just, I've mm-hmm. recommended the film hundreds of times. People have come back to me saying, why did you do that? God, that was a waste of my time. And normally what's funny is, and then we'll start wrapping this up, Madison, is that the thing at the end of the movie was a, was a terrible character flaw that we judge people for. And all the people who told me they didn't like it have that flaw. And so I thought, well, that's why you didn't like it. You know, like you didn't Mm -hmm. like it because it was a bad movie. You liked it because it was like how you act. So that's mm-hmm. what I think the fun part of film is. So uh, we can, you know, we can wrap this up. But what I wanted to do is, is just give you the floor for a minute or so. If there's anything you wanted to say about your, people call it can, con. I, I don't know what the actual name is because I've heard everybody call it a different thing. But uh, if you want to just say, you know, wrap up your experience, I would love to hear that. Okay. Um so just a little background to why I was at Cannes in the first place. I was doing an internship there um, with, I did an internship with Lotus Entertainment. Um, so I got to see the sales part of it um, because they were there. It was their sales and acquisition department while I was there. So I spent most of my time, um, it was crazy. I mean, I was just getting people coffee and stuff, but the the different people that I got to interact with was, crazy like everyone every every major studio you would think is at can and it was such a all of Hollywood, or not all of hollywood but like most of it was probably in can because it just felt like such a it was just saturated with so many talented people and so many big companies with so much power so i thought just the opportunity to go there was especially at my age like i'm going to be a junior in college and looking back it's like I I don't even know how that happened, but um, <laughs> I'm just so grateful. <laughs> I mean, no, that's I the best way to be. Uh, I mean, hey, that's, that's that's all you can do, right? I mean, all you can do is be grateful. Yeah. But sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, no, I just um, I just got back from Europe about like four or five days ago because I kind of turned it into a excursion excursion slash vacation. I went to more than can afterwards, but. I was there for two weeks. I was there from the beginning of the festival to the end. So I feel like I got a really good, I mean, I can't obviously explain it all in this short amount of time, but like a really good understanding of how everything works in that festival and just a really good behind the scenes look at, you know, you look at Instagram and everything looks so flashy and, but when you're actually on the red carpet, it's a completely different experience than looking in, like looking looking at the photographers rather than looking through their lens is completely, it's, 
it changes your viewpoint and the industry and it changes your viewpoint at the festival and what it means to be a filmmaker and just seeing things from inside an insider's point of view is just an invaluable experience for me. Now, one last question. Did you, and this is not a bad thing, there's no right or wrong way to answer it, but uh, I'm interested and we won't say it, but because of your age, were you able to to see a better understanding of uh, the way the industry can just set off the hype bomb? Like you you saw the epitome of industry hype, other than like a studio premiere down here in LA, mm-hmm. or other than like you know what? How, yeah. how was that for you to like really see that it's like okay, there's this monstrous circus. And then I'm mm. just, you know, back in my hotel room talking to pops. You know, <laughs> like, what what was that like through your eyes of being able to, I mean, because you're right, to experience that at your age. I mean, most people get that, you know, 10 years, 15, even 20 years down the road from you. So was, so, so were you not really noticing that? Or is that something that you've had kind of a way to look at of just be like, oh, my God, this is just this monstrous circus that they can create and then it breaks down mm-hmm. and there's no circus. I think at its heart, it's a bunch of creative filmmakers that want to create stories. And then, you know, it's just, it is a circus. It's a big ecosystem. You know, you got the press, you've got the, you know, photographers and the press and you've got the studios and they're financing the films and it is a whole, you know, ecosystem and it is a whole business. And I think a lot of people forget that it is a business and that, everyone is kind of in it for their own personal gain. Like, you know, uh, they're, but they're working together. Like it's, it's more, it's like, you know, a star would want publicity because that's going to give them, you know, access to, you know, more fame and then through that more opportunities. And so it, everything feeds off of each other. And then in something like can where you have so much of that industry in one place at one time for two weeks, it's like, the epitome of what of Hollywood like it's you when you're in it you're just seeing all these moving parts put together like I remember noticing like even the security guards like the people that were setting up because I remember I saw that I saw when the red carpet was being set up and just the amount of work the security guards that have to there was so much security at Cannes it was crazy like everywhere like you had to go through metal detectors just to get into the palais and there's a lot of a lot of security, but just like the amount of people that work to put on something like that is insane. Every single, like you need people to build the, the build the carpet, build all the, uh, what are they, the metal things that go on the sides of the carpet that hang the lights and just, it's, there's so much work that goes into it. And then it really does take away the flash when you go into it and you realize like it is like, at its heart, it isn't a circus. It's just that's built up around it. Um, but that's why I love film. It's because at its heart, it's filmmaking. Like, it is storytelling, and it is connecting with people. And there is a lot of hype. And I think, honestly, like, I tell my tell my friends and my parents this all the time. Like, I really, I'm not a big fan of the hype. Like, I really like being able to tell stories, but I'm not – super just like the publicity side of things and the glitz and the glamour and all of that and the red carpet part. So experiencing that and 
being in that position, like it just reaffirmed my, what I already knew to be true, which is that that's not who I am. Like it's part of what I want to do. It's part of the career that I want to go into, but it isn't why I'm going into it. It's not, it's not the core of the film industry. It's just part of it. So that really stuck with me the most, I'd say. Well, that's fantastic, and we really want to thank you for coming by today because a goal for years has been to not just do a show where we're reading a press release or we're reading info or we're reading what we read on another website was to talk with someone Mm -hmm. who was there. So, you know, thank you for that, and we appreciate it, and you know you're welcome here anytime, and yeah, you know, that's totally awesome. You you. made one of our show, show goals happen. Thank you so much. Excellent. You have a wonderful day, and I'll be talking to you, you soon. You too. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Bye. Aloha. Bye. <laughs> and we thank Madison for coming by. Uh, Madison is a filmmaker that the show met at CineQuest, as well as Troy, uh, her dad. They are a great filmmaking team. Uh, we've had them on the show before. You can uh, go into the archives or Google it. But, yeah, we wanted to wrap this up because pretty much Madison has said, what do I need to say other than have a great day? Aloha, and thank you for joining us on Talking Pictures.